Thank you, Gwen. Hi, everybody. My name is David A., and I am an alcoholic. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous am I sober this day. And I want to thank the committee for inviting me to come and share me with you and you with me. And this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And last night, why the voice of your convention, we in our part of the country, we call them the mouth. And uh, they were about announcements, said they've never had a theme or slogan. And this morning, uh, I was out walking, and I, and in the atmosphere, and the love, and the and the friendliness is just absolutely magnificent. And as I was walking down uh, one of the streets, I saw an arch and a saying on it. And I think if you were going to have a slogan, it fits it just beautifully. And it says, "It's the climate. <laughs> it's the climate of sobriety. It's the climate of love." It's the climate of AA, and this is where the great power of our society lies, I believe. The only thing I know about being an alcoholic is how I drank, and the only thing I know about living sober is Alcoholics Anonymous. And since April the 20th of 1967, I have not found any reason whatever to leave Alcoholics Anonymous, to find an easier way to live sober, a more comfortable way to live sober, a more sociably acceptable way to live sober, a more fun way to live sober, a more comfortable way to live sober. I haven't had to go to an action-reaction course, confrontation movement, related causes institute, sensitivity course, hang in there till your drawers fall off, baby, all them good things. <laughs> Everything I found to live sober, I found through all of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the only way I know how to make an AA talk that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. It was on the last Sunday in August in 1950, over 31 years ago, that a group of fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous invited me to come to an AA birthday party at the old suburban group there in Dallas, Texas. Now, the Wednesday before that, uh, that Sunday, that morning, I, I walked into, or stumbled in, rather, into one of Dallas's more affluent barbershops in a hotel. And I sat down at this manicure's table. Now, I was more at myself that morning. Now, being more at myself in those days meant that I was drinking, but I wasn't too drunk. I could sit in a chair for 10 minutes without falling out of it. I could navigate to and from the restroom and go out and get another pint of whiskey. And I sat down at this manicure's table, and this gal looked at me, and she said, David. And right there and then, I should have known that something was wrong. She didn't call me doctor. She said, David, I belong to a deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I looked at Edith, and I said, you're a liar. <laughs> Nobody stays sober a year, maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, but she said, I haven't had a drink in a year. Now, you know, uh, you know Edith looked like a drunk ought to look like, you know? <laughs> Her face wasn't real pretty. It looked like a truck had run over it and then backed over to see if it had done a good job. She had big bug eyes and gaps in her teeth, and God bless her, she'd been hit in the face so many times and fallen on her face so many times, and her nose had been broken so many times, just hung on the left side of her face, you know. <laughs> in our part of the country, if your car is caught out in a hailstorm, the best way I can describe her looks, rather, in our part of the country, if your car is caught out in a hailstorm and it's pretty badly beaten up, right when you get your insurance check, some wise buzzard says, don't get it fixed. Let it sit out in the hot sun for about three or four weeks and all the dents will pop back out. <laughs> Her dents never pop back out. 
But God, she's a great gal. Now, this was back in the day before the gals used to wear pantyhose, used to wear garter belts. And when she was drinking, hers always trailed behind her uniform. She'd trip and drop all them bottles. And back in the days, those gals with their garter belts used to wear hose with the seams up the back. And you could always tell when Edith was drunk. The seams was in the front and the front was in the back. But God, she was a great gal, you know, and I noticed she had changed. Now, the change was not that dramatic that morning. I noticed that other days I'd stumble on an infrequent basis through there because they didn't want me around there too much. I noticed that she changed, and I noticed when she started giving me my manicure that morning that she was buffing my nails instead of my knuckles as she used to. Her lipstick was on her lips and not her eyebrows. She didn't smell halfway between an Avon woman and a whiskey bottle. And she sat at her table and worked. She didn't grab her purse every 10 minutes and run somewhere. But I noticed the change, and the change was in her eyes. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have two kinds of eyes. We have those sad, sick eyes. And then we have those happy, dancing, sparkling, grateful, laughing, sober eyes. And then we have another kind of eyes, them glassy eyes. They'll get up behind one of these things and say, I haven't had a drink, you know, and then fall over, you know. <laughs> But her eyes were laughing and they were jumping and she looked like she was having a lot of fun living sober. And then she introduced me to another manicurist and I don't know why she introduced her Moena to me because I drunk a lot of whiskey with Moena. And she says, Moena here is my sponsor and she has 15 months sober in this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at Moena and I said, you're a bigger liar than Edith. Why Moena, we had a drink, not, she says, no David, I've not had a drink of alcohol with you or with anyone else or myself in 15 continuous months. Edith has not had a drink of alcohol in 12 continuous months. And we have a birthday party in our group for those this coming Sunday, for those who have one or more years of continuous sobriety. And we would like for you and your wife to come to that birthday party. And I looked at her and I thought that the only reason that people such as you would invite someone such as me to come to one of your AA functions is that you needed to have some good-looking, outstanding, and successful professional man come and upgrade you lepers in the community. And I was glad to come help you. And Moena and I were talking about this about three weeks ago and I says, Moena, there's something that you said. And I remembered it that Moena says 15 months of continuous sobriety, Edith 12 months of continuous sobriety, birthday party one year, she stressed continuous sobriety. She didn't say she was on the program, on the roof, around the program, but continuous sobriety. And so I went home and told my wife and she said be sure and tell Grace to come and I went home and told Grace and God she was thrilled because people had long since quit asking us to come around. Grace would ask me, why isn't it we're not asked to the outdoor barbecues and picnics and, and bridge games and card games and go to the nightclubs and the dances and pin the tail on the donkey and all them things. And I said, it's you, it's you. <laughs> I said, every time we're asked to go out somewhere on Saturday night, you start on me on the Monday before. And usually when I get in, you say, you're not going to drink. You're not going to get drunk, are you? And then you wake me up out of a sound sleep at five o'clock the next morning screaming, did you hear what I said? And you keep it up Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And what a tremendous price. Members of Al-Anon, Alateen, and emotionally clean and, and people who love us and don't and hate us. What a tremendous price they had to pay to find out that the more you scream at a drunk about his drinking, the more we're going to drink. And I said, and then when we get where we're supposed to get to on Saturday night, before I can even park the car, you're out of the car. 
and you grab the host and the hostess and you chase him out of the kitchen in the den in the backyard in the alley in the bushes scream don't you give him a drink don't you get mum and you're sick that's what's wrong with you but through tear-filled eyes she says are we going to the meeting and I says yes and so that Sunday morning I got up at 5.30 to get ready to go to an AA birthday party, 5.30 that afternoon. Well now what does a good self-respectful drinking drunk do when he gets up 5.30 on Sunday morning? Drinks whiskey, that's what he does. Let's face it, it's real simple. Golfers golf, fishmen fish, drunks drink. There's no big mystery. And I started sucking on a brand new fifth of whiskey. You know how it is, that, how that first drink, it gets your breathing started. And then that second drink regulates your breathing. And then that third drink goes all the way down to both heels and said, now you're ready to do some real drinking, aren't you, you know? And I'm drinking and I'm looking up at the sky and I start doing my meditating and praying. And we hear it in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time that due to the innate nature of our spiritual illness, that our selfishness and self-centeredness, that we care little for God or we hate God and our prayer and anything, I, d I disagree with you because I thank God for the grain. I thank God for the farmers that harvested the grain. I thank God for the distillers that made that grain and that wonderful elixir called whiskey. We hear it in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time that due to the innate nature of our own selfishness and self-centeredness that we care little or nothing for our fellow man nor their common welfare. I disagree with you because I then ask God to show a special kindness and love and particularly understanding to those folks that thought that drinking liquor was sinful that if they could just learn how to control it and enjoy it like I was doing, that they would find out that after breathing, it's the greatest gift that could be given to man. Amen. I took another drink. I drank about half of that fifth and threw the other half the fifth in the trunk of the car because I knew at that time that I was going to be required to have another drink of alcohol, not knowing the exact reason until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that when an alcoholic comes to us, unless that alcoholic is willing to find out what's wrong with them, they'll never be able to find out what can get right with them. And I went on in and I took a shave and a shower and bathed and I put everything nice and rich and fine looking to impress the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I put on a beautiful brand new tailor-made suit, white on white monogram shirt, monogram handkerchief, monogram drawers, Put on my diamond ring, my diamond Rolex watch, and the trademark of every good, self-respectful, high-rolling, drinking drunk. A brand new pair of custom-made alligator shoes. <laughs> and at 10.30 in the morning, I was out in my long Roadmaster Buick honking the horn. And out comes my wife, Grace, and she's got the rollers in her hair. And she has on, it's that all-your-fault kimono that they just love to dwell in, you know. <laughs> where she'd lost a string around the middle of it and it's pinned together with a big baby diaper pin, you know. And she's pulled all the thread and the padding and the fuzz and the buttons off the front and the front's just covered with tear stains and cigarette burns. And she looks at me and she says, what do you want, drunk? Meanwhile, all the neighbors had gathered out. And her side is lined up over here and mine's lined up over here. And I can still hear the ladies of the neighborhood saying, isn't it a shame that such a beautiful and lovely and fine lady and the mother and the wonderful mother of two wonderful little boys married to such a sorry, no good drunk like him. And my bunch over here hollering out, let her have it, David, let her have it. <laughs> and that used to be the weekend entertainment in every neighborhood we lived in. 
We move 24 times before we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes at midnight, sometimes at noon, sometimes early in the morning, sometimes ahead of the sheriff, sometimes with the sheriff, sometimes behind, just kept moving. I says, let's go to the meeting. And she says, doesn't get started for seven more hours, drunk. And with that, she turned on her heels and went back in the house. And that started seven tough hours because here it was Sunday. And I violated a very serious code in my drinking because I started drinking on the only bottle of whiskey I had. And I knew I was going to have to have me a drink later on. And I didn't want to disturb it. And I didn't know what kind of people you were in Alcoholics Anonymous, but if you were like my wife when I was drinking, you're just like gum on the heel of your shoe. And I noticed it and knew if I got around you, if I went out to my car, you'd be there. If I opened up the trunk, one would be laying there. What do you want? If I went to the restroom, one would be sitting on the stool. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, to heck with it. My ego demanded that I take her to that birthday party. My ego demanded that I satisfy the wishes of those two sober ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't want to disturb it. And I, I, so I just tough it out, and I found something to drink to nurse me along, and finally at 4.30, I honked the horn, here she came, and off we went. And we went out to the meeting, and we walked in, and there must have been about 80 members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and their wives, and the kid, and there's a poodle or two jumping around. And everybody talk. You know how it is when you get around a bunch of AAs and you're standing there talking to one of them? They just walk away from you. Yeah. You're standing there talking to one. Somebody walk right in between you. Come here. I need to tell you. Somebody said, who is that? I don't know. I haven't been to meeting in three weeks. The group changes, you know. Then I looked around and I saw all them signs and I said, my God, I'm in a kindergarten. And then I saw, but for the grace of God in my head, ducked. Because I knew at that time that I was not living according to the dictates of God's will for a human being. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that once we get physically comfortable, that deep down inside every one of us know that. If this be not the case, then this is, then AA wouldn't be worth a darn. And this is where AA is the greatest recovery program that's, that mankind has ever known for an alcoholic because it reached down into the one place that says, when, why don't you get sober? Why don't you get sober so we can have a good night's sleep? And we don't jump when the phone rings. It reaches down in that thing that comes with each and every one of us that wants to be comfortable. But guilt and shame and remorse block all this thing out as a result of our illness and AA just simply starts a process of deflating and deflating and uncovering, discovering and discarding and chipping away till it allows this thing down here to be comfortable. And then I looked around and I saw what I then believe and still believe, the, believe to be the, the most dangerous sign that you can put in an AA facility in an AA group and that's the one that says think. <laughs> because it's dangerous for our kind of folks to think drunk, sober or dead. And if you don't believe it, you pat a little drunk on the head and tell him how good he's doing in Alcoholics Anonymous and let him get over in the corner and start thinking for himself and he'll get drunker than an $8 bill on you. They blew a whistle and everybody went in the meeting and I went and I sat on the back row because I wanted to look you people over to see what kind of help I could afford to give you. And the first celebrant got up was a woman and my God, I fell out of my chair because that's the lyingest, cheatingest person I'd ever been in my, around in my life. And that lady had nerve enough to stand up in front of 80 people and say she was sober and sane in her right mind and had not had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I jumped out and I screamed out, liar. And somebody says, shut up and sit down. <laughs> and then this woman started talking about a miracle, 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 miracle. What seemed to me like 10 minutes on this one word, miracle. 
And after I got sober and I looked back, maybe it was two seconds or three seconds, but I couldn't stand it again, so I jumped up again and I hollered out louder, tell it, you big liar. And this time the put down and the shut up was firmer. And then this woman said, as a result of the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, she caught Christ back in her life. And if anyone who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, unless they found that Christ is the truth, and Jesus as their power greater than themselves, that there was no way in this world that they could stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said to myself at that time, what a heck of a trick to pull on a Jew. <laughs> that y'all invited me to this deal to convert me. And if this is what you were, I needed to drink bad. Now I'm asked all the time, all over this country and everywhere else, I can sneak in. How come there are not any more Jews and Alcoholics Anonymous than what there is? Well, you see, it's very simple. You see, the way people have their noses fixed and their names changed, you don't know who you're sitting next to in an A meeting. But my mind closed and I didn't hear anything else whether that said at that meeting because I violated a very serious code of my drinking and my living. Because I started drinking with, working with, get drunk with, fighting with, cheating with the black and the white wino, which was then Skid Row at Skid Row today, and I guess it'll always be Skid Row in Dallas, Texas. And I've lived on three of them in my lifetime, one for over six years and one for over four years, but the last 14 months was the toughest. And I'm not going to stand here this afternoon and share skid life on Skid Row with you. No, it's not the skid row in your living room, and it's not the skid row in your bathroom or the back seat of your car. I'm talking about a physical area to where there's no night and there's no day. There's no sky, there's no moon, there are no stars, there are no clouds. There are no seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, just total inner and outer blackness and darkness. And the best way I can describe that existence is just bodies and feet. You know, an alcoholic cannot stay on Skid Row. An alcoholic has got to get off of Skid Row. Because an alcoholic will not share his bottle with anybody. And if you don't share your bottle down there, you're not long for this earth. I don't mind telling you. And I did not have to be down there. I went down there as a youngster, 11 and a half years of age. I came from one of the finest families that God ever put on this earth. As a son, I was blessed with the most beautiful mother and father that any son could ever want and hope for. A mother and father who dedicated their lives to give to the two sons that were born to that marriage and I being the oldest. Everything that was denied them growing up. My mother and father were immigrants and they immigrated from Europe. And they immigrated to this country because they heard that they could worship the God of their understanding. And they fell in love with the United States. And they fell in love with our Constitution and the freedom to be free people. And my father went to work and he became a tremendous financial success. He had a very simple formula. He bought something for $2 and sold it for 6 He never wrote an insufficient check. His word was his bond. And they were and loved. And, and if I'd listened to my mother and father at the time, I was 40 years of age and never would have had to work a day in my life. I had enough money for all my great-great-grandchildren, a lot of y'all's great-great-grandchildren, and a lot left over. And so I never fell out with my mother and father because they could not provide the love and the understanding things necessary for a youngster growing up. I fell out with them when I got drunk and I got into jails and I got into institutions and I got chained up. And some of the things I did, none of your business. <laughs> I, could, I could go to them. You know, it doesn't take an alcoholic long to find out which one in the family he can put the bite on, which one will pick up the hot checks. Which one will go talk to his minister, his witch doctor, his priest or rabbi or whatever you got. It doesn't take an alcoholic long to find out which one will get his car out of hock. Which one will go talk to his wife, husband, live in, live out, children. Doesn't make any difference. And as long as an alcoholic 
drunk or sober, does not have to face the responsibilities of our acts, will never face the responsibility of our acts. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. It gives us the freedom to be ourselves and not run and to live a reasonable, comfortable, but more important, a sober life one day at a time. But I had many, many years to go before I realized this. I learned a lot of other, learned things down on Skid Row. As a youngster, I started drinking bay rum and wine. That was the standard fare. And later on, as I grew older and could get more money in my pocket, I could go from that bay rum and wine to that good Johnny Walker Black Label Scott, never miss a lick, and come back down from that good Black Label Jack Daniels down to Gypsy Rose and Thunderbird, never miss a lick. Because I don't know about anybody in here, I was not drinking it according to the price of it. I wasn't drinking it because it'll make you a better dancer, worse dancer, better fighter, worse fighter, better lover, worse lover, because it was socially acceptable. I drank her because I liked what it did to me and with me and for me when it got down in there, and I liked what it allowed me and not allowed me to do with you or away from me when it got down there, and I drank it to get drunk, and I liked everything about it. I liked the smell. I liked the taste. I liked everything that went along with it until, until, and little I realized that the first drink of alcohol that I took that I could consciously remember. It affected me in such a way, it planted something in my head and it says, David, every chance you're going to get, you're going to take a drink of alcohol to reproduce that initial effect. I learned a lot of other things down on Skid Row. Never get your back up against the wall. Always have a back door that you can jump out or a window or something. And if you eat or smoke anything, keep both hands free. I've always been five foot six. I was born five foot six. And I drink that juice and I'd be seven foot tall. I've had thousands of fights, never one of one. My navel's been where my nose is, my nose's been where my left ear is, my left foot's been where my right ear is, I've been all rearranged. And when I was 15 years of age, I run off and joined Ringling Brothers and Barney Bailey Circus. And back when I was a youngster, 15, I went with them for two summers. And that was a tremendous thrill because the Ringling Show at that time was the largest show of its kind under canvas, and it was the finest. And God, Ed, would come to a town, you know, in the end, like Louisville, Kentucky, and Oklahoma City, and Los Angeles, and everything. And the animals would drag the wagons through the town, and they'd have the parade, and, and all the wild animals, and the clowns, and the aerialists, and the Wild West riders, and God, it would have been wonderful for any youngster and a thrill, but not me. I went because you could drink and I was a substitute in the band. And I tell you, I look around here and I don't see any circus looking drinkers. And I want to tell you right now, I learned the most beautiful concoction to drink that I ever had in my life. It's called Green Lizard Circus Style. Oh, it's a tremendous mixture. That's elixir of sodium bromide and Lucky Tiger Hair Tonic. Let me tell you about that. I used to drink that stuff and I'd see Bam and them animals in Technicolor long before Walt Disney ever put them on screen. Oh my God. But you see, I was trying to live three codes of living. I was trying to live the code of living that society demanded that I live and to go to school and become a useful human being and of service to my fellow man. I was trying to live the code of living that my mother and father wanted me to live and they had all the money. And if you'd already been in all the trouble I had been in and was in and getting ready to get into, it takes a lot of money to get you out so you can get back in it again, you know? <laughs> and then I was trying to live the code of living that alcohol demanded that I live in. You're way ahead of me. You know which one went out. And I'm sitting on that row in the back row and there's no window and there's no door to jump out and that woman talking about Christ and I'm wanting to drink bad. And my head knows that I've got that half a fifth in the trunk of the car. And every time I stood up to walk through 80 people to go get that drink, it looked like 80 people stood up, turned around, looked at me, and pointed a long finger and said, sit here and listen, and this is for you. 
And I hated every member of Alcoholics Anonymous in that meeting and the ship that brung them over because they would not let me go get a drink. And right there and then, I made a promise to me that if they won't let me take a drink of alcohol, I ain't going to listen to what you had to say. And it darn near killed me. And it wasn't until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous many, many years later and they shoved the most wonderful book that I have ever been able to read in my life. It's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And may I remind every member of Alcoholics Anonymous in this room and every Al-Anon, every Alateen, and if there are many of our non-alcoholic friends that are here, that it is the only book in print with the two words on it. There is not another book just like it, greater than, more than, less than. If it's not it, it's not it. And I don't know about you, but I wonder how many of us stop and realize that when we admit that we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it's to each other, whether it is to an alcoholic on a 12-step call or to anyone, how many of us stop and realize that we're the results of what's in that book? Because if that book had not been, because that is where the recovery program is. The fellowship is a part of it. But that is where the recovery program is. No more, no less. And I shudder to think where we'd be today if that book had never been written. And I don't know about you, but tonight when I retire and I take my 10th step before I turn to the God of my understanding in my 11th step and thank him for allowing a monkey mic like me, in spite of me, to live sober this day. I ask myself, what kind of member of Alcoholics Anonymous have I been this day? Am I the kind of a member who's had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps? Or am I one of these who likes to tell people that I have and read all them books and bring it in and mix it up and it sounds real good while well, I hurt on the inside? Have I lived the kind of life today that if an alcoholic knows I'm a member of AA that's drinking or someone refers someone to me for drinking, have I lived the kind of life that that alcoholic will say to me, yes, I want to pick up my bed and walk with you. And every night I've taken that inventory and I've been taking it for a number of years, I find that I fall way far short what I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous can do and will do for an alcoholic. And I'm just talking about David, that's all. And they shoved that book in my hand and I began to read it many years later. And I began to read in the doctor's opinion and here's a little physician by the name of Dr. William Silkworth who treated over 40,000 alcoholics before A got off the ground and over 10,000 after A got started never saw a recovery. And Dr. Silky writes what I believe to be two and a half pages of the finest writing about the malady as we understand it in AA that's ever been put in print. And Silky writes that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. My God, when I read that many years later, it shot the balloon out of the air. I thought I was drinking because of the kind of woman I was married to. I thought I was drinking because of them two rotten kids. I thought I was drinking because the Republicans were in and the Democrats were out. I thought I was drinking because of my size, my hair, my color, my religion. I thought I was drinking because I was recalled back in the service. No, no, no. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And although we will admit it is elusive, we will admit it is injurious, there comes a time when we cannot differentiate the true from the false. And then the alcoholic believes his life to be the only one. A drunk can be laying out here five days, passed out, and you kick him and wake him up. And you ask him, you been drinking two beers? And he falls back down. You know? 
Silky writes, we're restless, irritable, and discontented. I never was restless and irritable and discontented when I was drinking. I was drunk. It's in between drunks that I was restless, irritable, and discontented. And until we can again experience the ease and comfort which seems to come at once after taking a few drinks. Drinks that we see others taking with impunity. My wife used to say, why don't you drink like Herman? I said, I don't want to drink like Herman. I don't even like Herman. She says, why don't you drink like so-and-so? I said, get so-and-so over to the house on Saturday night. And then and, and so-and-so and his wife would come over on Saturday night, and I'd feed liquor to so-and-so, whiskey like I was drinking. Come on, fatso. Come on. Oh, you're drinking like a girl. You're drinking like a sissy. Have another one. And an hour and a half later, so-and-so would be laying on his back on my living room rug. My floor would be on his navel. I'd look at my wife and I'd say, and you want me to drink like this bum here, you know. <laughs> Grace used to say, why don't you drink like a man? I said, I'm drinking with both fists. What else you want me to do? But once we succumb to the desire again, and unfortunately, many of us will, here comes the thing that separates our kind from the so-called social drinker. I was a social drinker. I drank with anybody. It didn't make any difference to me. And once we drop that juice within us, it sets up this phenomenon of craving for alcohol. My God, how my body craved alcohol. And that's where I found out what was wrong with me. Remember I told you I got up at 5.30 that Sunday morning. And I drank and I drank and I drank about a half-fifth whiskey. And I put the other half-fifth in the car. Knowing I was going to need to drink, not knowing the need. I read that many, many years later. And about nine hours had gone by. And no one would let me take a drink of alcohol. And it wasn't what that woman said about God or Christ or serenity prayer or Lord's prayer. That it didn't have a thing to do with it. My body was screaming out for a drink. My head knew where it was. You wouldn't let me go get it. And the obsession to go get that drink was the number one thing in my life. And Silky writes that once we succumb to desires, I said, it sets up this phenomenon of craving. And then we go through that well-known spree and we end up remorseful screaming to anybody that would listen to us. We'll never do it again, yet we did it again and again and again and again and again. And here's where Dr. Silky lays out our recovery program so beautifully and so simply when he says, until such a person experiences an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for his recovery. Now, how in Alcoholics Anonymous do we experience an entire psychic change? as a result of our ideals that are firmly grounded in a power greater than ourselves. And how in Alcoholics Anonymous do we firmly ground our ideals in a power greater than ourselves? Steps 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Our co-founders knew that we would be restless, irritable, and discontented. They knew that we would require more than. And so they gave us 12 more principles to live by. That our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Our primary purpose of staying sober and helping other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Our relationship not only with each other in Alcoholics Anonymous, but our sister and brother groups in Alcoholics Anonymous. AA as a whole and the entire world in which we live in. And they knew that once again, that once we got, they gave us 12 more principles to live by. And that's the 12 concepts of world service. So that the alcoholic that is born right this second in Grants Pass, Oregon, will get as good a break as you and I got when it's time for they too to get sober.
And it is our responsibility, and it is a tremendous responsibility. And it is a loving responsibility. And in time, it becomes a willing responsibility. But I had many, many years to go before I was to learn that. And then Dr. Silky tells us what will happen to us once such a person has experienced this entire psychic change. A person who has been doomed helpless and hopeless and useless and has so many problems, he'll never be able to comprehend how he will ever be able to solve them, can now very easily control his desire for alcohol. The only thing being that he be willing to follow a few simple rules and the word rules are Dr. Silkworth's words, but in, in Alcoholics Anonymous we just simply say suggestions. Well, as soon as that meeting was over with and everybody went for the coffee and the cake and the ice cream and the usually congratulatory things that we say about each other. I ran through that bunch like a tornado and I got out to the trunk of my car and opened up that car and I got out that half-fifth liquid gold. Now, I don't know about anybody in here, but I drank it down in two swallows. Now, that's the way I drank alcohol. I didn't put it in a brandy glass and run around and sniff it for four hours and burn candles and incense and listen to Lawrence Welk. And I didn't put an inch in a glass, nine inches of something else, and a straw and a fruit and cherry and suck on it for about three hours. To me, that's sick drinking. <laughs> I drank her to drop her down in that bottom where it'll do the most good and put another one down. You know how it is when you want to drink of alcohol so bad, my God, it's killing you. And you drink it and it runs down your Adam's apple and it gets in your chest well and starts pulsating like arrows. Then it runs down in your tummy and then runs around your navel about 12 times, you know. Then it starts down your right and your left leg together, heading for the five toes on each foot, cruising just like the racers at the Indianapolis Speedway. Just going, and it gets down to the toenails. It makes a U-turn, starts coming back up. And it gets halfway between the ankle and the knee and the head says, I wonder if it'll make her all the way up. I better drop another one down there to meet it. And so the trick is when you're drinking is to have one going down and one coming up. Now, until one has experienced the need to have that feeling fulfilled and until one has experienced that feeling being fulfilled as the result of that need, we'll never be able to comprehend what we're talking about. And this is where the great power of our society lies. One drunk talking to another. No, you're not different. No, let me tell you my story. This is where she lies. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what happened to me when I drank that juice. I quit being restless, irritable, and discontented. My hair laid back down. I quit perspiring. My toes went back in them alligator shoes. I ran up the steps and went back into that group and got hold of the oldest sober member that got sober in that group. He's still alive, the oldest sober member that got sober in that group. I got to arguing with him about the quality of y'all's fellowship, and he said something to me, and I hit him because when I was drinking, I was bad to hit somebody taller than me, shorter than me, fatter than me, and skinnier than me. And then he ordered in two of his sober babies in and we started to fight. And I'm going to tell you right now, for me, that fight was a lot better than that birthday party. And I was just whooping the devil out of them two little old sober drunks. And they did an unfair thing. They run two more in on me. And finally, four of them picked me up bodily and threw me right out of that group. As I'm sailing through the air, one of them said, we don't need your kind here. And another one said, and furthermore, you're too young to be an alcoholic. And I stood on that grass that Sunday evening, drunk and belligerent, with my fist clenched, screaming to anybody that would listen to me that I would never come back to this Christ soul-saving organization as long as I live, that I was not an alcoholic, I was too young to be an alcoholic, but the next 17 years, everything that could possibly happen to a human being happened to this human being. 
And the only three things never did happen to me, getting ready to get on a drunk, on a drunk, coming off a drunk, right to this second, I never did willfully murder another human being, fall in love with another man, or die drunk. All of that, it all happened. You know. And, you know, and, 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 and right after that, I was recalled back in the service. You know, I told you I'd married a fine lady. And when we got married, Grace didn't realize that she was marrying an alcoholic. And so when we got married, we didn't start to build a marriage. We started to build a booby trap <laughs> that could go off on any second, any day, month, or year, you know. And I was recalled back in the service as a naval dental officer, and I didn't have to go, but it, things were beginning to get bad. It gave me a chance to get away away from my creditors. And for a lot of things were beginning to hound me, and I got into more trouble than there's trouble. Christmas Day, 1954. I'm laying in a military prison. One of the meanest that's ever been devised by me. It's worse than any PW camp, worse than any concentration camp. It went by a code name, and it only had room for 128 it was later bulldozed under congressional investigation. And I didn't know how I got there until after I got there. And here it was Christmas Day 54 and, and, and I've got a leg iron locked around my right leg and a chain welded to the leg iron, the other end of the chain welded to a steel cot. And the four legs of the steel cot immersed in concrete and there were armed Marines around me 24 hours a day with M1 rifles, fixed bayonets, sidearm, daring me to move. And I'd been laying like that for seven and a half months. I was to lay like that for one solid year. And because of my insolence and because of my belligerence and because of my not willing to cooperate and my resentments and hate and venom, four and a half of that seven and a half months I was on straight bread and water with just a nurse and meal every now and then. And here it was, Christmas Day. And in comes this little marine orderly with the Christmas dinner. And I've been in a lot of places where they don't give you knives and forks. They give you a spoon. And they count the spoon before they let you go back to your little iron doggy house. And he's grinning from ear to ear. And he's saying, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. And I'm so full of Christmas spirit and love for my fellow man. I say, ho, 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 you know what. <laughs> and he says, here's your Christmas dinner. Merry Christmas anyway. Enjoy it. And when he handed it to me, I was so full of gratitude and so full of humility. I picked up that tray and I hit him right in the face with it. And my Christmas gift for doing that on Christmas Day in 1954 was 45 more straight days on bread and water. Now that's what you call a bad day. <laughs> I have not had a day that bad since I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got out of that by hook or crook. Some people took their lives as a result of my involvement with them because I had to run and I wasn't through drinking and I had a lot of other things to do. And I finally got out of the service and Grace took me back and we started moving around, moving around. And we decided to move and raise our two boys in a Christian environment. So we moved to a little town in the panhandle of West Texas, 3,500, that supposedly lives in a Christian environment. That's a town of 3,500 that votes dry and drinks wet and the two most popular people in the town is a bootlegger and an undertaker. And I'm drinking every day and I got up to where I weighed 260 pounds and my blood pressure was so high that every time my pulse would beat, my hair would stand up straight and pump like an oil well, you know. And I had a fat doctor friend in a little town up towards Amarillo and I went up to see old George and old George goes in and looks at me and he says, well, let's have a drink. And that's a good doctor to go to when you're drinking. And then he cut it off, and then he put the cuff on, ran the air up, and he says, My God, David, it's a miracle you're alive. Your blood pressure's so high. He says, But your problem is you are a compulsive eater. 
And he says, you're going to need some help, and I can give you some help. He didn't say anything about my drinking or anything else, not two or two. And he wrote me a prescription for 60 of the most beautiful capsules I've ever seen in my life called Nemudons. And he says, go get it filled. So I went home to the little town I was living in, went to the drugs, got it filled, went home to lose weight and stay drunk. Well, I looked at the prescription and it says, take one three times a day. Well, any good self-respectful drinking drunk knows if one's good, two's better, three's terrific. So I just took three of them, drank some whiskey, didn't feel like I was losing any weight. <laughs> took three more of them, drank some more whiskey, ran into the bathroom, turned sideways in the mirror, didn't look like I was losing any weight. <laughs> took some more of them, sat there, looked like I was getting fatter. You know, our co-founder Bill wrote some very prophetic lines and he said, you know, when a drunk is drinking, it's time out of mind. Time passes so slow. And the only sad thing I found about Alcoholics Anonymous is that time passes so fast sober. Where does it go? And finally, I, I took all the pills and drank all the whiskey. And the next thing I knew, I was out in my backyard and I was picking peaches off of rose bushes. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> And they tell me I ran around that little town of 3,500 for two days talking in the unknown tongue, you know. <laughs> and being one or two Jewish families in five counties around, they gathered everybody in to see and hear the miracle. Because word had spread like wildfire. The Jew had caught the Holy Ghost. And when I come to and, come to and realize what happened, I said, my God, them pills are messing up my drinking. Oh, I'd been to the psychiatrist and all the questions he asked me. Grace used to ask me for nothing. But it was in this little town, it was in this little town, that the entire picture of alcoholism, how it affects the alcoholic, how it affects the loved one, how it affects the people who love us the most and people who do not care for us. And I got sober and I had to look back to remember this. There was a fine man in that town. He owned everything in the town. And I never did understand why he loved me so much. And it was after I got sober I realized that he had a daughter that was an alcoholic. And back in those days they called them dipsomaniacs. Or just a bad drunk. And she was a source of embarrassment to the number one family in town. She stayed drunk all the time. When she'd get out, she'd fall down and knock her teeth out or lose her glasses or her shoes or clothes or this or that, and she'd wander off. And this was an embarrassment to the drama club and the, uh, the literary club and the music club and the flower club and the cemetery cleaning detail club and all its other deal. And they used to keep her in the back room. And finally, they had all of her that they could stand, and one night they put her on a midnight bus to Fort Worth, Texas, where she was to wander the streets of Fort Worth, Texas, drunk, and she died in an alcoholic convulsion, never to get sober. As I look back sober, I realize the reason he loved me so much that he could see so much of her in me. And this man, and, and here he was, he owned everything. Here was the lawyer's office, here was my dental shop, here was his insurance and his abstract and title company, here was his bank, here was his feed mill, here was his blacksmith shop, here was his tractor house, here was his, 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 and he passed away. And they asked me to be a pallbearer. You know, that's a tremendous honor. And so that Thursday morning, it was a cold, rainy day and not quite cold enough to sleep. And I'm putting on my pallbearer suit and I have to have me a drink to take off the chill and then another and then another. And I slid what was left in the back in that station wagon and I go to the church house. And being that he was a leading layman in the Methodist church in this town, the church looked like it was two-story, but it wasn't. And you had to climb up steps. It looks like you're going up Pike's Peak. 
And then when you go in, you're at the back of the pews, and then to go down to the front pew, it's just like skiing down Pikes Peak. And that's where the pallbearers were on the front row. And I've been in lots of churches and lots of religions. I've been dry cleaned, re recycled, reclaimed, rededicated, reborn, rewashed, re-everything. And I'm sitting on there, and God, and they, they had augmented the choir, and the place was crowded, and they had people hanging from everywhere, and it was hot in there, and they had steam radiators, and when I was drinking, my seasons were out of whack. I'd freeze to death in the summertime and burn up in the wintertime. And I'm sitting in there, and I'm wanting to drink, you know. And, and, and here they go, and everybody's got to get up. It won't be long now. I'll get a drink. And, and, and you know, that's an obsession of an alcoholic. Here, someone that loves you and they're being buried and the, you can't keep from taking a drink or thinking a drink even when the most important things in life are going all the way around us, you know. And finally, but no, then the choir's got to sing and they start in at the foot of the cross and Jesus loves you and I love to tell the story and amazing grace and I hate that hymn because I'm married to a gal, her name is Grace and she ain't amazing, I don't mind that. <laughs> And on and on. And finally they get through. And I says, now is my chance. And so the pallbearers have got to wheel the coffin up, you know, and stand there while the congregation files by. And everybody looks at them, then files down. They line up on the steps. And I knew I could not hold the northeast corner of that coffin up without a drink. And so as soon as the funeral house assistant come by, I grabbed him and says, would you take my place? I'm sick. And I run out the door. And I go out and I get in my old station wagon. I get about three blocks away and I reach under get that long neck bottle and I take me a drink and then I take another one and then I take another one and thank God I had sense enough not to try to get back in that funeral procession while drinking at 10 miles an hour or try to climb in with the pallbearers and so I just circle the town and I'll meet them out at the cemetery and I'm circling and I'm a drinking you know and when I was drinking and driving still like country western but in those days my favorite radio station was Del Rio, Texas where they sold Bibles and crosses and chains and trusses and rejuvenation powders and potions and lotions, post office box, so and so. And they played those wonderful tunes. Don't wink them bloodshot eyes at me. And one's too many and thousands not enough. And here's one that's good for nine months of drinking and 11 months of crying. Only God made honky-tonk angels, you know. And I'm drinking and I'm driving and I get out to the cemetery and I'm the only one there. So I take another honk on the juice and I slide up the hill. The only thing there is a false grass and the chairs and the tent and the grave had been dug and two stanchions with a sling on it and an lectern and being a real good smart nosy drunk I've got to be sure that all the arrangements are proper and I see a couple of chairs out of line I straighten them thing get it behind the lectern give about a three minute eulogy you know and I have a sinking spell so I slide back down the hill and take some more of that juice and by this time between that alcohol and I started and, and, and I'm a little unsteady of balance and you know I'm going this way like a car out of alignment my feet are going this way and my bodies are going this way and I'm sliding up the hill and I see two chairs out of line now if there's anything a drinking drunk doesn't want to do he doesn't want anybody to know he's been around and messed up something because we do not live in a vacuum we feel we get blamed for everything it doesn't make a bit of difference and so I'm in a lurching stage now and I don't know if you've ever had any dealings with that false grass. It's like outdoor, indoor carpeting. When it gets wet, it gets slick. And you're unsteady of balance and drunk. And you have on a pair of pointed alligator shoes. And I reach over to grab them chairs and I hit a seam. And the next thing you know, I'm sliding and me and the chairs are both down in the bottom of that grave. 
and I'm thrashing around down here and I'm flat on my back trying to get out. You know the most helpless feeling when you're drunk and you're trying to get up and you're on your back and you can't. And here comes the preacher and here comes my wife and here comes the deceased with the pallbearer. And you know now, non-alcoholics are wonderful people. Now in my books, when I say non-alcoholics, I'm not talking about Al-Anon. They're a different breed. <laughs> non-alcoholics are great, but they can ask you the dumbest questions at the wrong time. The son of the deceased hears all this squealing down in the bottom of that grave. And he looks down and he asks me this question, what are you doing down there? <laughs> and I gave him an alcoholic's best shot. I said, I'm trying to get out. <laughs> And they hauled me out, and I'm wet, and I'm drunk, and I know that every eye is looking on me while they're finishing the rites of that fine man. Now, here is the whole picture. A normal person who should maybe, by mistake or accidentally, get drunk, and that happened to him, will be so embarrassed and so ashamed that chances are they'll never do it again, probably never drink again, but I'm an alcoholic. And you know what's going through my mind? I could see the utter disbelief. I could see the utter befuddlement. I could see the tears in my wife's eyes and the shame. I could see the utter, utter not believing. And the only thing I could think of is get this thing over here so I can go get me a drink and get that look of those people out of my consciousness. And as soon as that funeral was over with, I did go. I didn't go get me a drink. I got me a box. And I stayed away three and a half months. But all oh, the humiliation and the teasing that my two little boys took as a result of it. Your daddy, the bad drunk. December a year ago, Grace and I were asked to come out and talk to the 10th anniversary of that AA group in that little town. And when we got out there, here comes the committee. And the committee come up to me and says, David, would you do us a favor? And I said, what is it? And he said, would you talk about falling in the hole? <laughs> and I said, yes, I would, because two of you on this committee were pallbearers at the time. <laughs> so stick around in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I had to move away from that town. We moved back and God and started all over again with a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to live. But I'm taking me with me. And it wasn't long before the last 14 months. Grace went to work for a place she hated with every fiber of her being, a place where I started and for the people as a youngster, 11 and a half years of age. Nobody knew where I was. And yet all Grace had to do was look out the west window of her office and she'd see me fall out of a wine hotel, the 55 cent a night hotel rooms with your shoes tied around your neck. And I know that area like I know the back of my hands. And I'd crawl under those docks and 18 wheelers looking for Grace because it's the only only gal I've ever loved in my life. And she was so fine and she's good and she was clean and she smelled good and she was a wonderful mother and father to those two little boys. And she grew them and she had for them to grow up and, and, and it hadn't been for my mother and father and my wife's mother and father, those children never would have been educated. Nothing at all. You know, I'm asked all the time, David, how is it that you've been locked up and got into all those troubles and everything else? How did you manage to graduate school? Well, I was my class valedictorian in high school. I was second in a class of 450 at Southern Methodist University. I'm a graduate of Baylor University College of Dentistry. And people say, how'd you do it? It's real simple. You cheat. <laughs> you steal. And you lie. 
And you laugh. I went home once the last year I drank. I went home. Maybe Grace had a key. And I was drunk and she looked at me and she says, David, do you have to drink and do the things that you're doing? And I guess it's the only time I told her the truth up to the time. I said, Grace, I can't stop drinking. You're such a fine lady. Why don't you find another man that will marry you and be a real good husband to you and a fine father to those two boys? I cannot function as a husband, as a father. I can't work. Everything near and dear is gone. My mother and father in the religion they were born in, lived in, died in, and very devout. Fourteen and a half years before I got sober, they lit the candles of the dead and said the prayers of the dead for seven consecutive days. And on their eighth day, their son was no longer alive in their minds on this earth. He was dead. And everything near and dear is gone. I says, Grace, I cannot function. I'm going to die drunk. I can't stay sober. And I stumbled out. And somewhere along the line on April 18th and 19th of 67, I really don't know, I found the handwriting on the floor of the county jail there in Dallas, Texas. And I've been in lots of jails, and incidentally, being in jail is not a requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but I got to the point in my life to where I couldn't stay sober, and I couldn't stay drunk, and I couldn't eat, and I, and I wanted to eat, and I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't stay awake, and, and, and I couldn't kill myself, and I couldn't stay alive, and I didn't want to live anymore, and I'd run out of people and everything in this God's world. But I was taking me with me every place me went. And I screamed out on that jail floor, my God, is there any help for me? And something within me said, listen, you overeducated, pompous, egotistical, and spoiled little drunk, until you stop drinking, nobody can help you, not even me. Which is meant to me and means to me right now that I was the one that had to stop drinking. Nobody could stay sober for me. And I said, if I ever get out of this jail, because the next, for, next to the last time I was in that jail, that sheriff who was alive then, told me to my face. He said, if you ever show up in my jail again, drinking or drunk, and the things that you're doing, I'll have you put away to where you'll never bother another human being, bird, tree, dog, or rock. And I says, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to call those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, over 31 years ago, a group of fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous who could see in me what I could not see in myself. They're like our co-founder Bill when he was running around the Mayflower Hotel in Akron in 1935 before he got started. Not knowing whether to go into the bar to listen to the conversation and the laughter and the music and the chatter, the tinkling of the ice, or to talk to a drunk. And it wasn't important that Bill talked to another drunk to try to carry the message. It was important that Bill talked to another drunk so Bill would stay sober. And this is what they were doing for their sobriety. But they planted something deep within me that after I had exhausted all alternatives for David, for David, for David, not you, but for David, I screamed for help. And when I got out, I didn't know where that gal Edith was, the one that asked me to come to that birthday party. After I got sober, I found out she passed away, but she was continuously sober when she died. I heard that Moena had moved out to West Texas. I see Moena every Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock. She is my manicurist today. And coming this May the 15th, Moena will celebrate her 33rd continuous sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't going to call that Christ woman, God no. But let me tell you about that gal. She's one of the greatest gals in AA I've ever known. She has done more to help me understand the fundamental difference between dogma and creed and religion and the simple spiritual principles of Alcoholics Anonymous of being truthful with God and truthful with your fellow man by being truthful with one's own self. 
and on our own. We do not have the strength to be truthful. God gives us the power, and you monkeys keep me honest. Now roll that around your head a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But let me tell you about that gal. She too, come this August, will celebrate her 32nd continuous sobriety and alcoholics number. There was a man at that meeting who is now my sponsor. I heard he'd gotten drunk, but I called him up anyway. I called him up and I didn't know if he was in AA or A&P or where he was and I called him up and he said, who is it? And I said, it's me. He said, who is you? And I told him. He said, what do you want? I said, are you still interested in Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, yes, who is it for? I said, it's for me. He said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow night. Let's just go and get it over with. And don't you take a drink of alcohol today and call me in the morning at 7.30. And that's all he told me and he hung up. And after coming to you, I, I was wondering where all that love and care and sharing was that you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous. But that man knows me as well as any human alive. And he knew when I called him that I had run out of every Jew in the Southwest and I got down to you Gentiles and I was in serious trouble. <laughs> And I started at, after 37 years of drinking cold turkey. Well, it's more like frozen buzzard, if you want to know the truth. I started walking and shaking out a drunk. And I beat my head up against the wall. And finally, when I come to the next morning, I was sober. And I didn't have a belly full of tranquilizers, nor did I have a prescription for 400 more. And for this, I am so thankful. And it's a kind of sobering up you don't hear much in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. And the best way I can describe that kind of sobering up, it's like a natural childbirth without any anesthetic. It hurts like the Dickens, but you sure got a wide awake baby. I don't mind telling you. And at 7.30, I called him again. And he says, are you drinking? And I says, no. He says, call me at 3.30. And I started walking and I shaking and sweating. And finally at 3.30, I called him again. And he says, are you drinking? And I said, no. Then he says, do you really want to come to an AA meeting? Well, by this time, I was willing to crawl through six feet of snow naked just to see what kind of people you were that had this insatiable desire not to drink alcohol. And he said, do you want me to come get you? And being about as humble as Hitler, I said, no, I'll get there under my own steam. He says, all right, when you turn the corner, there's a whiskey store on the left, a beer joint on the right. Don't you stop and buy any, consume any alcohol because when I get out there, David, I'm going to search you and I'm going to smell you. And David, if you're drinking or drunk, I'm going to throw you right through the front door. David, you cannot come to Alcoholics Anonymous drinking or drunk. This is what he told me. And he hung up. Well, I was in a serious predicament. Because somewhere between the jail and the office, you see, the last four months I lived in, I had a pair, all I had was a pair of thermal underwear, an old pair of gray flannel pants with all my possessions in my pocket, an old gray sweater with the elbows out of the elbows, no socks, but I still hadn't quite lost everything yet. Had a pair of beat-up old alligator shoes. <laughs> and the only money I had was 30 cents, and that was all that was left from the last blood I'd sold at the blood bank to buy wine. And when you get to AA in that shape, you ain't doing too good, you know. <laughs> Well, somewhere between the jail and there, I lost my thermal drawers. And so Grace hadn't heard from me in so long, so I called her up. I heard she had thrown out all of my clothes. And I called her up, and she said, who is this? And I said, me. She says, who is me? I said, David. She says, oh. And then she says, what do you want? I said, Grace, do you happen to have one of my old suits? And she says, yes, I have one, and it's to bury you in. As I look back now, I then ask her the most foolish question I ever asked in my life. I said, do you mind if I borrow it for a little while? <laughs> then I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, it's another one of your lies and hung up. 
Well, now, the, the suit's in the store in itself. And so I went and, and got the suit, and I put it on, and I bid my family goodbye. Now, there was an instant joy when I come home and told them I was going to AA. Oh, they didn't jump up and holler and scream and do ring around the road. No, she'd write notes, and then I'd go over there, and she'd spray every place I'd been. <laughs> I put on this suit, and I bid them goodbye. The youngest one is home, and I got into a Mustang that the banking was, bank was looking to repossess it, and, but they couldn't recognize it. It looked like an accordion. And off I went to the meeting. And I went in there on a Friday night, and it looked like the same people that were there 17 years before were there grinning. We knew you'd be back <laughs> if you hadn't have died. And now I'm going to tell you about the greatest day talk I've ever heard in my life. Every member of Alcoholics Anonymous has heard it. And if you haven't heard it, you have been cheated in your group. I've been privileged to hear many, many fine talkers in alcohol. We don't have any speakers in AA. You know, if it doesn't come from what it used to be like, what happened, our own experience, it's just not alcohol, it's anonymous. I believe. I've heard Bill, our co-founder, and many fine talkers in AA. If it's not the language of the heart, that is alcoholics anonymous. This man then said to me, welcome, come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. He didn't say, you never should have done those things. He didn't say, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have done all those things. No. He just simply said, welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. And I don't know about anybody in this meeting or in Alcoholics Anonymous. But that and one other experience. And that is sitting at the bedside of a wet drunk. Whether it be in bed on the floor or working with drunks that and that kind of a message if there are any other spiritual experiences to be found on this earth other than them I ain't looking for them that's a real spiritual experience because it instilled in me that there was no situation too difficult and no unhappiness too great that a drink of alcohol would make it any better it would make it worse they welcomed me in and here come that sponsor of mine and he grabbed me and the sleeve come off and he told me and he searched me and he smelled me and he says you can go in and this one started telling me a little bit about their story and this was a little bit about their story it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that they didn't say leave when I come to the door it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that they said welcome and after the meeting was over with it was the first time in 17 years of my life they walked up and they said they loved me and it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking when I got ready to leave they said please stay and it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that they said come back we need you and you need us that's a spiritual experience that is a spiritual experience for me and it started a way of life you know we are normally people who would not mix but there exists among us a fellowship a friendliness and understanding that's indescribably wonderful and now for a few short moments, I'd just like to share with you how it is today. Little did I realize that when I got uh, sober in AA that my wife and two sons would ever be under one roof again. Because that marriage had been written off by everything and everybody including Grace and myself and it had no right to be. But only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon. That beautiful and wonderful lady, we will celebrate our 40th continuous marriage. 
this June the 10th. And that's pretty good for a drunk. You see, it took a program in my life and a program in her life to do to and with and for both of us what we could not possibly do to and with and for ourselves. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you because I'm in AA and she's in Al-Anon that our married life is just perfect, that the bluebirds are flying around and hugging and kissing and the butterflies are cooing and winking. Heck no. We have a few short rounds every now and then and some more serious. That's what's called clearing the air, communicating. <laughs> the best way I can describe our marriage today that it's built on solid, constructive imperfection <laughs> because it's by our imperfections that we grow. And anyway, she goes to five, six Al-Anon meetings a week, and I go to six, seven A meetings a week, and we don't see each other enough to have all that nitpicking, arguing, and fighting and fussing. The two young men, uh, boys, are grown men today. They are tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. And wonderful thing happened as a result of the Al-Anon and the A program in our home life. It has allowed every one of us in the family to live what we call spiritual principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. What is spiritual principle living? That's allowing each of us to be ourselves as we are with all of our pet imperfections. I don't know about anybody else's family in our family allowing every member of the family to be ourselves. And above all, allowing every member of the family the freedom to make our own mistakes. You see, if I hadn't made my mistakes, I never would have found you. And what's the first thing you told me? They said, David, if you don't take the first drink, there's no way in the world you can get drunk. And what's the first question I ask you? But how do you live without alcohol? And you know what you answered? You said, David, if you decide that you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. And in taking the steps before I was halfway through the ninth step, I too suddenly realized that God was doing for me what I could not possibly do for myself. And I never would have found this if I hadn't been free to make my mistakes and free to ask for you and receive your experience. And the day we not only have a wonderful father and son relationship, more important, we're the best friends. When I got sober, they were chasing me with papers to serve me to remove my license to practice a profession for the rest of my life. And I had to go to them and I had to go tell them the truth. And by some miracle, they allowed me to return to work. And January a year ago, I was asked to come down. I was asked to put my right hand on the big, big book, raise my left. And at that time, I was sworn in as a member of that examining board, a board that was there over 15 and a half years ago to remove my license for the rest of my life. Not to serve, as a counselor for our troubled dentists who are zinged out on everything. No, no, I was elected to that board by my peers just to serve as a human being. And you see, this is not me. This is all Alcoholics Anonymous because ours is not a personal success story, but one of colossal human failure converted into great strength by the alchemy of the living grace of God as expressed through the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous and our fellowship therein. So you see, only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a sober life today. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of the recovery program, I have a God today, a God that I found through the 12 steps, through you people and from nowhere else. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a family that loves and respects me. I have the best way to make a living I've ever had in my life. I have hundreds of thousands of friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and in the world in which we dwell in. I have a roof over my head. 
I have a few dollars in the bank and, and, and a very few and a few dollars in my pocket. I have two cars with gasoline in them, I hope. I have some nice clothes today. I have meat in the refrigerator and groceries in the pantry. And I'll tell you a little secret. If you want anything any more than that, you either oversexed or plum nuts. <laughs> And you've been so wonderful, and I've talked a little bit too long, but I want to share one story with you, and then fine. And it sort of expresses the way I feel. There was a little youngster who lived in the Midwest. He was an orphan. He lived in an orphanage. And he had a very, very terrible stuttering impediment. That every time he tried to talk, he'd start to stutter. And the harder he tried not to stutter, the worse the stutter got. And the harder he tried not to talk, and it just was a mess. And the other youngsters used to tease him because it so frustrated him, he'd perform, and he'd cry and he'd scream. He even tried to hang himself in a tree. But something happened to that little youngster. Something happened to him. All of a sudden, he started walking around, and he had a beautiful look in his eye, a sparkle in his eye, a smile in his eye. And he had a smile on his face. And no matter how hard anyone tried to get him to talk, he found the secret that as long as he didn't try to say that first letter, he wouldn't stutter. And so he just walked around with a smile, with a smile. And he had a good luck for everybody. And then one Sunday morning, the visiting preacher didn't come and they didn't have anybody to read the devotional prayer, so the superintendent called for a volunteer. And little stuttering Johnny held his hand up and the superintendent saw him. And he looked at Johnny and he says, Johnny, are you sure you know what you're doing? Johnny just nodded, he says, well, come on. And Johnny got up behind the lectern and he opened up the prayer book and he began to read. As he began to read, each letter was perfectly enunciated. Each word was perfectly pronunciated. And as he began to read, there came from within him through his eyes a look. The same look that I saw in Edith's eyes in that barbershop over 31 years ago. The same look that I'm seeing in your eyes right now. And today I know what it is that God is doing for us. What we could not possibly do for ourselves. And as he read the look became more beautiful and more beautiful. And when he finished there was a deathly silence when he said amen. And after the services were over with. The superintendent ran over and hugged little Johnny and kissed him on the forehead and he says, Johnny, do you realize what you have just done? That you read those prayers perfectly. You didn't stutter even once. And little Johnny stood on his tiptoes and looked up at the superintendent and beaming from ear to ear. And he says, Mr. Superintendent, when I read and when I talk to the God of my understanding, I do not stutter because he loves me. God bless each and every one of you and thank you for your love for me and I love you so much.